0: I want to begin by reminding you who are keeping count that Christmas is only 77 days away. So, anyone else knew, knew that this morning? Anyone else keeping count? Yeah, okay, 77 days away. If you've been to Hobby Lobby, you know that it's right around the corner. It's been right around the corner for about six months at Hobby Lobby. But uh, one of my favorite Christmas party traditions is, is uh, having a white elephant gift exchange where everyone's assigned a number and chooses whatever gift they want to open in order of their number. And the first time I played one of those, I was around seven years old, around Lucy's age, and I just happened to get the first choice. And do you know what I did? First choice, I I went for the biggest box in the room. Biggest present there was. And do you know what it was? It was a big, ugly, old lamp. And what's worse, nobody else wanted to steal that lamp from me. So that lamp was mine. It probably is still in my parents' attic somewhere today. And uh, even though I got to go first, I chose the last present I would have wanted. And uh, I learned the hard way that first is not always best. Let me give you another story. One of my best childhood friends was named Danny Sadler. And Danny's dad worked for the Baltimore Ravens football team. He was not a football player, but he seemed big enough to be one. Uh, Danny was the one who introduced me to football, and uh, when we would get together uh, to play with friends, there would be team captains, and, you know, being new to football and being the size that I am, just even more miniature at the time, under usual circumstances, I would be one of the last picks, but I had this advantage that I had a best friend who was also a team captain. Even though my skills warranted me getting picked near the bottom, more than once I know Danny picked me near the top to be on his team. I warranted being chosen last, but because of his friendship, I was often chosen first. According to the world, it's simple first is best and last is worst, and that's it. But the kingdom of God does not operate this way. According to Jesus, the exact opposite is true in the kingdom the first shall be last. And the last shall be first. This morning we're going to learn what this means and why it matters as we follow Christ. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 19. We are continuing our series through Matthew called "Following the Fulfillment," and this morning's passage is Matthew 19:27 through Matthew 20:16. We're picking up immediately on the heels of an interaction between Jesus and a rich young man who had come to him asking what good deed he must do to gain eternal life. And Jesus and this man interacted as Jesus thought to expose his heart, expose his idols. And we'll pick up in verse 21 of Matthew 19, just to pick up where this context left off. So Matthew 19, starting in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So our passage today begins with a question from the disciple who is always ready to speak up, Peter. And he's just heard Jesus tell this rich young man that if he left everything and followed him, he would have treasure in heaven. Well, the rich young man walked away, but it apparently got Peter thinking, we've done that. And so he says to Jesus in verse 27, see, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Peter's saying, you told him that he would have treasure in heaven if he left everything and followed you. Well, what about us? We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. What will we get for our sacrifices? Before we hear how Jesus responds, let me just ask you, what have you left to follow Jesus. What have you left to follow Jesus? Maybe you've left behind the approval of your family. Maybe you've left behind former friendships or past relationship. Maybe you've left behind a, a certain career path that would have led to financial prosperity. Maybe you've left behind the promise of an easier life or a more comfortable life. If it's a hard question to answer, if you're not sure what i left behind, well, let me put it this way. How would you be living differently now if you weren't committed to following Christ? For true followers of Jesus, following him requires sacrifice. So as a follower of Jesus, what sacrifices have you made? What has it cost to you? Now with that in your mind, here's Peter speaking on the behalf of all of Christ's disciples. What will we have? What will we gain for what we've left behind? What will we gain in exchange for the things we've sacrificed? What will we get for our losses? What will our treasure in heaven be? This is the question Jesus is answering, and his answer comes in two parts. These are the two points of our message today. First, Jesus says that we can look forward to a rich reward we can look forward to a rich reward. What then will we have? Here's what Jesus says in verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus hears Peter's question and he points him to the future, to what he calls the new world. This word is literally the word regeneration. It's the word that we usually use to describe how the Holy Spirit takes our dead hearts and he makes them alive. He regenerates them. He makes them new. Here Jesus uses that word to describe the reality that one day this world is going to be made new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It's all going to be remade. It's going to be a new creation with no more hurricanes and no more sickness and no more sin and no more sorrow and no more death. That day's coming in the new world. And then he says, in that new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So he's just painting a picture. New world in the center of that world. The Son of Man's going to be sitting on his glorious throne. He says that he is going to be at the center of that new world. For anyone that tries to say Jesus didn't believe he was God and worthy of worship just point them here and say, Jesus believed he was going to be sitting on the throne in the center of the new heavens and new earth, reigning over it all in his glory. Now, Peter already got a preview of that glory with James and John at the transfiguration. Peter has seen this glory, and he says one day that glory is going to be unveiled for all to see And a new heaven and a new earth. And on that day, Jesus has painted this picture with that glorious reality in their minds. Jesus answers his question, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now what exactly Jesus is promising the twelve here is highly debated. What does it mean to judge Is this the literal tribes? But we can at least say this much. His disciples will participate in that glorious reign. That's the reward Jesus promises the twelve. They will reign with him and they will somehow participate with him in his rule in those new heavens and new earth. That's the reward that he holds out to the twelve. But Jesus then answers Peter's question on behalf of all disciples in verse 29. He says, that's what you twelve will experience, but everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So what we have here is Jesus' promise to every true follower of Christ, to everyone who's ever made a sacrifice in this world for his namesake, that is, in order to follow him and to make him known, so these words come directly to you and I today, what's our reward? The promise is simple, whatever you have left, you'll receive back a hundredfold. Whatever you've left, you'll receive back a hundredfold. If you've left behind a house, a hundred houses, right? If you left behind a family member, a hundred family members, that's the logic of what he's saying. Now, understand, he's not speaking literally here. He's stating the promise in such a way that we realize this truth. Following Christ is more than worth it. Following Christ is not just worth it, it's more than worth it. It's not like we're just going to get back what we gave. We're going to get back a hundredfold of all that we gave. Whatever losses it requires, whatever sacrifices we may make, whatever sufferings it may bring, Christ promises that we will be incomparably rewarded in the new heavens and new earth. We won't even think about the sacrifices anymore because of the greatness and richness of the reward that is waiting for us. And then look what he says at the end of verse 29. And you will inherit eternal life and you will inherit eternal life. Now, if you think about that sentence, does, does the flow of Jesus' promise strike you as a little bit odd? You'll receive a hundredfold of all you left, and you'll receive eternal life. What's surprising about that is that eternal life is the greater thing. It's not just the cherry on top. It's the greater thing. You can give me a thousandfold of something, a millionfold of something, but no matter what, Eternal life will always be the greater thing. And I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is this. Don't ever forget the substance of your reward. Don't ever forget the substance of your reward. Let me illustrate it this way. Wives, how would you feel if your husband said to you, what will I gain for marrying you? Husbands, if your wife said to you, what will I gain by marrying you? What's wrong with that question? It misses the point of the marriage entirely. You got married for your spouse, not for what you could gain by your spouse. And here's Peter with Jesus saying, what will we gain for following you? He's missing the point entirely, isn't he? Jesus is so gentle with him here. He lovingly points him to the reality that there will be a wonderful reward, an incomparable reward. But then he gently reminds him, you gain eternal life, Peter. And in John 17, 3, Jesus tells us the essence of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if we we follow that, then what Jesus is saying is that the substance of the reward that makes all our sacrifices worth it is eternal life. And the central treasure of eternal life is relationship with God through Christ. That's what we gain. We gain Christ And every other reward only matters in light of realizing that he is our great reward. This is the richness of our reward. And Jesus concludes this first part of his answer in verse 30 with the proverb, but the first will be last and the last first. Here's what this means. The return of Christ will bring about a great reversal in this world. The return of Christ will bring about a great reversal. Those who are first here and now, like the rich young man, will be last when Jesus returns. And those who are last here and now, like the disciples who have left everything, they will be first when Jesus returns. And the reason why is because on that day, the first will lose all their treasure and the last will gain Christ as their treasure. On that day, they'll lose it all, but we will gain Christ himself. And so the first will be last, and the last will be first. And so if you are a follower of Christ, you can look forward to a rich reward. It's a re- reward that far surpasses all the losses that you will endure in this world. You might be last here and now, but when Christ returns, you will be first, because you'll enter into eternal life with him. When your troubles and your toils and your sacrifices and your losses and your labors and your sufferings cause you to ask the question, what will we gain? Is, it, is this all worth it? Why am, I, why am I doing this? Why are we so committed to following Christ with all that it's costing us? When, when that thought comes, preach to yourself. Remind one another, we're going to gain a hundredfold. And that's not even the main thing. We're going to gain Jesus. Eternal life with Christ. That's how Jesus answers Peter's question. That's the first thing we need to hear: the encouragement that it is more than worth it, whatever it costs, whatever sacrifices and sufferings and labors come. Following Jesus is more than worth it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. That's not where Jesus stops. He perceives something in Peter's question. He he realizes that there's an attitude underneath in Peter's heart and so he continues to respond and he gives a parable to draw out his heart this leads us to the second thing we need to see today that we must look out for a merit mentality we must look out for a merit mentality yes we can look forward to a rich reward but we have to look out for a merit mentality let's walk through this parable together Verses 1 and 2, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So these verses introduce us to a master who owns a vineyard that's ready to be harvested. And at the beginning of the day, he goes out early in the morning and he finds day laborers. who, who th- These people don't have work and they're, and they're hoping that someone will hire them so they can go home and feed their families. And he he finds some, and he agrees with them. I'm going to pay you a day's wages. I'm going to pay you a denarius, which is a day's wages. And they agree to that, and they go into the vineyard and begin working. The parable continues, verse 3. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So 6 o'clock, he brings the first workers. 9 o'clock comes, and and he decides, I need more workers. And so he goes, and he finds more, and and he doesn't tell them what he's going to pay them. He just says, I'll pay you what's right. It's going to be a fair payment, and they trust him, and they go. Well, 12 o'clock comes, and and he realizes, I still don't have enough workers. I'm going to go find some more. Same thing happens. 3 o'clock comes, same thing happens. I'm going to get some more workers because we're not going to finish the job uh today and so we need we need more he brings them in they go every time we can assume he tells them whatever is right i will give you there's no standard agreement at this point the laborers simply have to trust that they'll be paid fairly for their labor and then verses six and seven about the 11th hour he went and found others standing and he said to them why do you stand here idle all day and they said to him because no one's hired us he said to them you go into the vineyard too." Once more, the master realizes with one hour left in the day that he needs more help. And so he goes and he finds more workers for the last hour as the sun is setting. And he hires them and they go for the final hour and and then the day is completed. And here's what the master does, verses 8 through 10. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, the ones who worked one hour, each of them received a denarius, a full day's wage. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So the laborers who worked for just the one hour received payment first, and they received for that one hour a full day's payment. First workers see what's happening down the line. You can imagine that they're looking at what they're receiving and they think, they got a denarius, what are we going to get? We've been out here all day. And he comes to them and they get a denarius. Leads to verse 11, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. What are they grumbling about? They're, They're crying injustice. They're crying, this is unfair. They feel wronged. They've worked all day in the hot sun. They've worked 12 times longer than the last group, and they don't get paid anything more than they did? We see the heart of their complaint in these words, you've made them equal to us. You've made them equal to us. You're treating them like we deserve to be treated. You've treated us as equals when our labor and our toil has been far greater than theirs. The master responds to just one of the laborers this way. He replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me, Ford Denarius? Take what belongs to you and Go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Notice how he addresses the laborer. He calls him friend. This is a kind master who treats his laborers not as servants but as friends. And on calling him friend, the master corrects the complaint. He says, there's no injustice here. I'm not being unfair. I've done you no wrong. The only thing at work here is my generosity. I paid you a full day's wage just like we agreed. What is it to you that I want to be generous to them? Remember, these people need to feed their families. They, they have a need. They're working, trying to get hired because they have a life and they need a livelihood. And in his, in his compassion and in his mercy, he gives them all they need even though it's not all they earned. To pay a day's wage to the laborers who worked the full day is fair and good. To pay a day's wage to the ones who worked just the last hour is compassionate and generous. So these to his final words, or do you begrudge my generosity? He exposes the real reason they're upset. It's not injustice that's upset them. It's his generosity. They're angry because he chooses to be generous. They complain because of his compassion. Like the prophet Jonah on the mountains outside of Nineveh, they grumble because of his grace to others. When we grumble because of God's grace to others, it reveals that we think we've earned it. It reveals that we think we deserve it. Why does Jesus tell this parable in response to Peter's question? Well, remember what Peter asked, what will we gain for our sacrifices? How does this parable engage with that question? Let's just think about it for a minute. First, let's remember, we can't overinterpret parables. So, for instance, the master's inability throughout the day to hire the right number of workers doesn't mean that God somehow doesn't know how many people he needs in his kingdom work. Not at all. It's just part of the story. The number of groups that are hired doesn't stand for five different kinds of disciples. That's, that's not something that the story is communicating. But here's what we can see. The first group represents the twelve. It represents the master's interaction with them. And the one servant seems especially directed to Peter, who asked the question in the first place. This group has worked the longest and the hardest. They're the ones who Jesus called first, and they've sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. There were other disciples in this time, but they were the only ones who, who had left everything behind and followed him day by day for three years. The last group represents other disciples, future disciples, disciples who are called later disciples whose sacrifices might not seem as great, whose labors might not seem as toilsome, whose sufferings might not seem as intense as the twelves. And then the master represents the Lord himself. And listen, here is the master's defining characteristic, it's generosity. Generosity. He's not like masters in this world. He befriends his servants. He gives out of his own wealth to meet our actual needs, regardless of our merits. He's kind, good, compassionate, and gracious. This is who the master is. With that framework in our minds, we can begin to see why Jesus gave the parable, because underneath Peter's question, there was a merit mentality. He's viewing his sacrifices and his labors as deserving of payment. He sees the life he's living, the sacrifices he's making, the losses he's enduring, and and he seems to believe that Jesus owes them something. But through this parable, Jesus is reminding Peter and the disciples and all of us that in the kingdom of God, our rewards are not based on our labors or our sacrifices. They're based on God's compassion and generosity. In the kingdom, our rewards are not based on our merits, but on God's grace. This explains why Jesus ends this parable the same way he ended in verse 30. So the last will be first and the first last. He uses that same phrase, but here he fills it with a new implication. In verse 30, the phrase pointed to the truth that Christ's return will bring a great reversal. But here, Jesus is teaching that his grace is the great equalizer. So there, It's it's a reversal. The first will be last, the last will be first. But here he's saying there is no first and last in the kingdom. The reason there's no first and last in the kingdom is because it is a kingdom of grace. Order doesn't matter in the kingdom. In the world, order matters. First is best, last is worst. Jesus comes and he flips that on its head. In the kingdom, there is no first and last anymore. We're all equal. As we follow Jesus, as we labor, as we sacrifice, as we suffer, here's what we can never forget. It's all because of his grace. And the only way that we can remember this is if we live before the cross of Christ, and this is built into the narrative itself. Look at what happens next in Matthew, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. How could we ever say, see what we've left to follow you when we are remembering what he left to save us? How could we ever ask, what reward will we gain for following you when we live before the cross and see that he loved us and gave himself for us? The cross reorients our hearts. It reminds us that we are equally undeserving because of our sin. We are equally in need of salvation. And we all receive the equal reward of Christ himself. And it's all of God's grace purchased for us, not by our labors, but by his labor, not by our sacrifices, but by his sacrifice. St. Augustine said, our rewards in heaven are a result of God's crowning his own gifts. Our rewards in heaven, whatever they might be, they are the result of God's crowning his own gifts. What this means is that though we may say, I've left everything to follow Christ, we must remember I did that because of the grace of God at work in me. Though we might say, I've labored all day under the heat of the sun, we then acknowledge, I've only done that because of the grace of God strengthening me. And so when God rewards us for our sacrifices and our labors, he's he's really just putting a crown of reward on something that he accomplished through his grace. It's all to his grace. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I sacrificed, I lost, I suffered, I labored, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace all along. Paul understood that because Paul lived before the cross. And he lived with Jesus as his reward. And so church, let's look forward to our rich reward and let's look out for a merit mentality. As we look forward to that reward, we need to beware the temptation to begin thinking that we are earning it, that we deserve it, that God owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything. We're strengthened by grace, we labor by grace, and we receive of his grace for all eternity. It's by the grace of God that we who are last in the world will be first in the kingdom, And in that kingdom of grace, there will be no first or last anymore. So church, let's sacrifice and let's suffer and let's labor and let's toil by his grace and for his glory until we receive him as our true eternal reward.